So, let me uh, start by, this would be a good time to open your Bibles, if they're not already, and take a look, because we're going to be looking really close at this, and once we get out of Genesis 4, it's going to move rather quickly, but until we get out of Genesis 4, it's a little slow, okay? Um, really out of three. F4 moves pretty quick, too. Um, but uh, this is really s significant to, to, to parse this and go very, very meticulously through this portion, okay? So, now the serpent, I put in there Revelation 22, because this is a passage that identifies the serpent as Satan, okay? Um, he sees the dragon, the angel did, that ancient serpent who is the devil. And as far as I know, the, the, the word for devil in Greek is, is diablos. That is a combination of two words. Uh, dia, which means through. And I think it's balo, which is to throw. But I, I, I want to check with Josh. It could be bole, um, which I think is also, also can mean to throw. But diablos, th through, dia, and throw, okay? So we get the name devil from two words that mean to throw through. T to throw through is, is if you break it down, that's what it means, to throw through. So this word then gets, it evolves into becoming the word disruptor, disruptor, okay? So to throw through, I mean, it's the essence of if I took this, this isn't probably heavy enough, and I threw it through the window, that would be diablos. It's to throw through. So you get this idea that there is an organized situation, a, a wholeness to a situation, a unity. And diablos means to disrupt that unity. So think of it this way. I think it's in Chronicles where God describes himself as his eyes are searching to and fro throughout the earth to find a heart that is wholly yielded toward him. Remember that? You probably read that before. It's kind of a memorable phrase. His eyes look to and fro for a heart that's wholly yielded toward him. Remember when Satan comes and appears before God in Job? His answer to God when he says, what, what were you up to? He says, I was roaming the earth, searching to and fro. It's going throughout the earth, right? So put, put it this, this is how I like to put it. If God's eyes are looking for someone's heart who's wholly yielded toward him, Diablos' eyes are looking for a unity that he can destroy and disrupt. He loves to break things apart that are whole and together. Whether that's a family, whether that's a marriage, whether that's a, a, an in, internal peace, he loves to throw through that bust through that and just explode that unity. This is why when you get to the New Testament, 
Paul will say, warn a divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with him. What's a divisive person like? Who's a divisive person like? They're like Satan. You put them in a church and they will fracture the church. They will destroy the church if they can. They will plant seeds of distrust and mistrust. It's crazy, right? It's satanic. It's satanic. It's what he does. It's who he is. And what could you find that is a more whole and unified and together and peaceful and tranquil situation than the Garden of Eden, right? He gets in there and he disrupts it. He diabloses it. He throws, he throws through it, okay? So what we want to look at is how exactly he does that, all right? So we're going to take it very slowly through the fall. Let's just consider some of Satan's tactics, okay? This is, this is all just pulling from the narrative. So again, we're doing narrative work, and we could be wrong. We have to open ourselves up to that possibility. But with what God's given us in the narrative, let's try to be faithful to it and do the best we can, okay? So here's what we can pull out. Satan's tactics. Who received the word from God to not eat from the tree? Adam. Because we're getting into why did he approach Eve, right? Eve hadn't yet received direct word from God as Adam did, according to the narrative. It's what we've been given, right? We're just doing our homework with what we've been given. She also hadn't recently, recently received a lack fulfilled as Adam had. Adam had a lack, he went to sleep, and he woke up with wonderful Eve being walked toward him by God, right? Adam's sorrow, although it wasn't sinful, because he wasn't sin sinful at this point, his sorrow, whatever that was like in a sinless state, his sadness, whatever that was like in a sinless state, got catapulted to, at last, right? Adam had just experienced the wonderful, gracious provision of God. Eve hadn't. She had her creative moment, right? She'd been given the creation like Adam had, but Adam experienced a loss or a, 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 something missing in creation to something gained. She hadn't. So Adam's development of faith, you could say, and trust in God was deeper than hers at this point. Without sin, either one of them. And this, this even comes to Christ. Oh, I'm forgetting the past. Oh, was it, is it Hebrews? Hebrews? Yeah, I think it's Hebrews. Where Jesus grew in his obedience through suffering. Pretty crazy passage, right? What's that? Hebrews 5? Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Jesus obviously never sinned, but he was created as a man and he grew somehow more like 
like deeper and deeper with every pain and every struggle into the Father. It's a very interesting passage. So there's no sin, but there's, there's deeper and deeper levels of trust that God is doing in Adam, did in his son, and Eve hadn't experienced that yet. He chooses a less intimidating creature than his actual being. Right? What, he doesn't appear, like Corinthians will say, he appears as an angel of light, right, which is false. But he is some sort of angelic being. He doesn't appear as that. Instead, he comes as an snake, which is in the realm of an animal, which could be potentially less intimidating than his actual form, right? More subtle is the, is the thing I'm getting at. Subtle, okay? A question is more subtle than a direct statement. True or false? It's more subtle, right? It's, it's, more, it's, 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 it's less intimidating. Just say, hey, like, let's just think somebody totally disagrees with you about something. And then since they say, hey, I disagree with what you said, and I think it's this. They say, hey, what do you think about it? And they're setting you up, right? <laughs> they're getting you. And that's how he approaches. It's got a humble tone to it. His question is aimed at the love and character of God. The love and character of God, which should tell us all something. It's at the time, you got to think, this is, what is, uh, uh, Luke, I think is the one that says, after Jesus leaves temptation, he says, and Satan left him until another opportunity. Well, surely that was an opportunity right then. Why wasn't a good opportunity? Why was the wilderness a good opportunity? Um, he just went 40 days without eating, right? He's weak physically. So why does, what is it about an opportune time that Satan chooses? Well, whenever we're doubting the love of God, it's an extremely good opportunity for temptation, is a, a principle. The, the love and character, doubting the love and character of God is a very vulnerable spot. Eve's answer twice lessens the generosity of God, obliterates the tree of life, heightens God's restriction, and lightens his discipline. Let's walk through each one. So look at your texts. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Oh, and I missed something. I just noticed. You guys, you guys tell me what I missed, okay? He said to the woman, did God... Huh? No, 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 not even there. What I... Huh? What's wrong with the name God? Did Elohim... What's the name of God that we've been hearing all through chapter 2? Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. It's the name that he, that came into existence, or came 
to us when he breathed air into the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. It's the intimate name of God. It's the name that he's going to reintroduce to Israel. Satan comes to Eve and says, hey, did that higher power say, uh, do you see? He doesn't. All right, listen. My dad, I, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, if, if I got in trouble with my mom, okay, and my mom told my dad, Ben did something, da 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 okay, my dad would come to me and he'd say, what, what, what did mom tell you? And I would say, well, she, and he'd go, stop. Who's she? And I'd say, mom. He's like, okay, call her mom then. Don't call her she. What, what's different about she versus mom? <laughs> and I didn't even know I was doing it, right? But I was, setting it, I was setting it up to be in my favor. Don't say mom. Don't say the, because that brings to mind that she carried me for nine months and fed me <laughs> and, and changed my poopy diapers. Yeah. She is a much more amorphous term. It's not intimate, right? Mom, and that's, he'd always do that to me. Stop, 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 stop. Satan is coming, and he's saying, what did, that, what did that guy upstairs tell you, right? Let's not get personal here. This is Satan, guys. It, 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 it comes naturally for him to lie, more naturally to tell the truth. It's, it's his native tongue. Okay. Did God actually say, did he really, did he really say, you shall not eat? Of any tree in the garden? True or false? False. Go back and look at your texts to verse 16 of chapter 2. You may surely, freely, is what the, you may freely eat of every tree. So he's telling him how many trees he can eat from and how he can eat from those trees. You can eat from any tree, and you can eat as much as you want from any tree. Freely. Eat, eat, go. Just go. You're free. From any tree. Satan comes and he says, did he really say you shouldn't eat of any tree? So he, takes, he steals two things from God. He steals the fact that God said you can freely eat it's one thing he stole, and then he stole, you can eat freely from any tree. He, he steals both of those things from God's character. Now, he comes to the woman. He asks her the question. If you guys have ever seen, like, boxing matches, okay, this is kind of what it's like that I picture. The two boxers are in the corner of the rings. They're about to meet in the middle. You know how they kind of meet and hit gloves or whatever? And, and they're coming to meet in the middle. And instead of meeting in the middle, the one guy goes to the ropes, leans over the ropes, and starts talking to that guy's girlfriend or his wife. So he, he's not talking to who he should be talking to, is the idea. It's at this point that what is the curse that falls on Satan? Her seed will what? Your head. Crush, bruise. He'll get your head. You'll get his heel. It's at this moment 
the moment a falsity about God had entered the garden, Adam should have taken the snake, if it was on the ground or in the tree, thrown it to the ground, killed it. What did, when you get to Numbers 25, what did Phinehas do when one of the Israelites, at, when they were worshiping Baal of Peor next to the Moabites, and God sends a, a, a plague on them and people are dying, Israel's just begging God to stop, and in the midst of all that total chaos, an Israelite isn't just worshiping with the Moabites. He takes a, a, a woman from, a princess I think it is, from the Moabites into the camp of Israel, into his tent, to sleep with her, is what the text indicates. And what does Phinehas do? He's a, he's a priest, by the way. Picks up a spear goes to the tent and puts it through him and her, which indicates that they were in the intimate process and he killed both of them. And what does God do? He, he stops the plague first and then he, sa- he tells Phinehas, you will be a perpetual priest in my house because you were zealous for my name in the same way that I'm zealous for my name. That's Phineas. That's his character. And Adam allows that in the camp of God right before his very eyes and lets it happen. So, two Times he lessens the generosity of God, and then Eve's answer does, she compliments, she compliments this, okay? Check it out. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat, true or false? You may freely eat. She, less, she took that out. We may eat. We may. We freely eat. I mean, imagine. I had a friend that he sold newspapers, and the person that was in charge of him took him to a restaurant, and he, he grew up in, like, a really poor family and didn't eat a lot. He gets to this restaurant, and he says, order anything you want. He ordered two meals, a milkshake, all this stuff. He finishes the meal. He walks out of the restaurant and just throws it all up. He, he ate so much, right? I mean, he was so excited to just eat, right, and go. I mean, this, this was the thing. Like, we can freely eat. We can go. It's, it's free. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the tree. Oh, sorry. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. True, false. We may eat of, what did God say? You may eat of every tree in the garden. We may eat of the trees. We may, not freely, of the trees, not every, 
But God said you can eat freely of every tree. But, so, he introduces two lacks of generosity of God, she compliments it with two lacks of generosity of God. But, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True or false? What do you, you guys, hey, we're studying this. What, what tree was in the midst of the garden? The tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the first tree that's said to be in the midst of the garden is the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's with it, but it's not the first one that's said to be in the midst. She obliterates the tree of life. She doesn't even mention that it's there. Huge miss. Huge miss. She goes on. It gets worse. Neither shall you touch it. True? False. Welcome to the history of the church. Uh, guys, I, I don't want to tell you American culture. I don't know what Ethiopian culture is like, but it's the church. There was a day back in, back in I think, like the 500s, 1500s, where the church condemned intimacy with your wife half the days of the year. True story. Yeah, for some reason or another, it was forbidden. It wasn't holy, right? And I'm sure, I don't know how much Ethiopian culture has it, but I grew up, there were certain things you couldn't do. None of them in the Bible, you couldn't do. See, we won't get into all that. We can't get into all that. But what I'm going to tell you is we're going to get to Exodus 19. We go to the law of Moses as he's about to give the Ten Commandments. And you guys freely drink. Yeah. <laughs> I know. This, this is what's hard. This is what Alex and I were talking about. Yeah, we're going to get into the fall and when it happened. Okay? But as you get to the text, it... it I think there's a clear point of the fall, but I, I tend, as I, as I study the, the text, and it will get, to give another boxing analogy, do you ever watch, yeah, guys, start drinking, start, you guys get up, free, feel free, grab something, and I'm just going to keep talking, just pay attention while you do. If you watch a boxing match, do you ever see when a boxer's like all but gone, <laughs> right? You're like, it hasn't happened yet. But it's coming. And sometimes the ref even stops it so the guy doesn't get brain damage, right? Because he's like, he's just getting pummeled, right? That's, that's the way that this reads, is all I'm saying. I don't think the fall happens until they ate from the tree. And it's, and it's hard, yeah. Oh, thank you. I think this raises another question. Okay.
Yeah. She is still a full blood survivor. Right. I would assume that would happen after the war. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All I can do is follow the narrative. I'm, I, we, are left, we are left with what he gave us. It's the best I can tell you. So we have to be faithful to follow the text. I don't think, you know, James, James is a very helpful passage. So let's, let's go, let's jump to James. Yeah, and it's a tricky, it's a tricky deal. And I don't claim to have the market cornered on it, but um, we will we will do our best. James. Okay, James one. Thirteen. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now James is speaking in a sinful environment, so it's not a perfect analogy because Adam and Eve were not sinful. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, that applies more to us than it does to Adam and Eve. So it's not, this is not a one-for-one comparison, because we are sinners, she wasn't, okay? Um, let's see. Lured and enticed by his own desire... Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So there's an element in which I would look at this under a magnifying glass, which we're kind of doing, a microscope, magnifying glass, and we're looking really close. I would not say it gave birth to sin until they ate from the fruit. So, and, and, that, and, and that has been, as far as I know, the historic, underst- the historic Christian understanding of all time. So, I think we're pretty safe in saying that. So, but we still need to do due diligence with the text. And that's, that's what we're trying to do here. As difficult as it might be to wade through these, these waters, we got we to gotta do our best. Okay. Yeah. As long as you guys will say say this, if we don't get to Deuteronomy, you won't stone me. All right? Okay. Go ahead. Well, okay. Let me let me jump, let me jump in. There's a saying. This is not a biblical saying, but it's helpful. You can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. So, if I'm walking down the street and I see a beautiful woman, I saw a beautiful woman, and I move on with my life. If I choose to dwell on that in an inappropriate way. I'm sinning. 
if I know in my mind that I can dwell on that if I want to, and I may be tempted to, but I decide not to, I'm not sinning, even though I'm contemplating the decision. It, that's because I'm a sinful man, but I wouldn't say the sin happens until I do it. Amen. Did Adam and Eve ever walk by the tree and think about eating from it? I mean, that's hard to say because they're not sinful, you know? It's like, it's really hard. We're, we're very inexperienced in that environment because we're all sinful. We're all sinners, you know, made righteous. But, yeah, it's a tough one. Faisal. What's that? I, I, would, I would call these omissions uh, is probably what we should call them. Omissions. Which, if, if you study theology, there, you know, there are sins of omissions and sins of commission. So it's tricky. It's tricky. But you can't, you can't argue with that these things are present in the text. So as uncomfortable as it is, we got to work through it. All right. So, let's keep going. So, what we've been over so far is she twice lessens the generosity of God as Satan twice um, did it. And it's actually, uh, he did it three times, you could actually argue, because he didn't call God the Lord God, which stole something from God. Okay. All right. But God, oh, and this is what I was going to get to. You shall not touch it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it, Right? It's not in the text. It's not what he told Adam. Fascinating. You ready for this? You get into Exodus 19 at Sinai, right before God gives them his ten words. And Moses, and, he, and God tells them, we're, get, we're getting into Exodus, but when, when Moses sees the burning bush, what is, what's the first thing God tell him? Take your sandals off. For the ground you're standing upon is holy, right? They get to Mount Sinai. They're about to receive the ten words. God tells Moses, I want you to go to them. Tell them not to get too close to the mountain. And tell them to wash their garments. Same sort of concept, you see? It's different, but the same. It's, you know, speaking about the proximity of being next to God. So Moses comes down the mountain. He goes to them. He says, hey, nobody come close to the mountain. Nobody climb the mountain. Don't even touch it. That's what God said. Moses is doing a great job. He's the next Adam, in a sense. He's an Adam. Noah's going to be the next Adam. These are new, new leaders, new heads of the faith, right? He comes down and says, don't get close to the mountain. Don't climb it. Wash your garments. And don't go near a woman. <laughs> First time I read that, I'm like, I don't remember God saying that. So I went back. Guess what? God didn't say that. Why didn't Moses? Good question. This is what I'm telling you. It goes back. It goes back. We add prohibitions that God never did. Okay. History of the church. 
the sad history of the church. There's a lot of wonderful things, but that's a sad history of the church for sure. I mean, it's the New Testament, right? Circumcision, which day you worship on, huge arguments in the text, whether to eat meat sacrificed for idols or not. Paul says, look, I know that meat is not, un- is, no meat is unclean in itself. You know, it, it's just all these struggles we have, right? And, and honestly, I think all these struggles come back to the fact that we are not content in Christ being day seven. We're not content in Christ being our sufficiency. So we feel like we need to add little things on so that we boast ourselves up. And Paul says, but if you do that, then you have a reason to boast. Okay. So I move on. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. You shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, forgot about the tree of life, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. True? False? Yeah, let's focus on the eating, because that's what he's trying to get her to do. Is that true? Lest you die? (laughs) Thank you! Guys! She lightens the discipline. It's the equivalent of saying, or I might die. God was dogmatic. You will die. You will surely die. Excuse me. Surely. We might die if we do that. Yeah. There you go. Oh, man. This might have been where it came from, right? So, you know, while Eve's, let me say this, while Eve's sinless state is foreign to us, this whole process is not in a very uncomfortable sort of way. Because the last time you sinned, the last time I sinned, we walked through a very similar process. So this part is a watch out. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. Be careful. Do not give Satan a foothold, Paul says. Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. He's got Abel's death on his mind. It's all over his his brain. And God's saying, what are you doing? Cain, you got something nasty going through your head. It wants you. It will devour you. Get it right. It wants to have you. This is all, all tied in to this significant moment. Now, this is where it gets awful. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He uses the same words as God. As though if that were in Eve's brain, get rid of it. Like, I'm going to go way deeper than you even went. If you think that, it won't happen. For God knows, now he continues with his initial thought of doubting the love and character of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, where's the irony in that? Well, the irony is they're already like God. They're already like him. And 
the sense is, is that they already, in a sense, know what is good and evil because they know that the tree is un, un, uh, uneatable. So they know what's good because they're living by God's definitions. Alex and I talked quite a bit. I really hope you guys catch the thought of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not like some like awakening moment, which is really easy to think of it as, as much as it is you begin defining what is good and evil. That is eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's that you are taking the scepter from God. And you are beginning to call the shots. You are saying, this is up and this is down and this is all the way around. I'm making these calls. That is to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's how I know that. And that you can take that to the bank. That that's not some spin that I'm doing. It's from the text. And here's how you can know it. Keep reading. So, when, remember guys... And Alex, you can't help him on this. Remember, remember, remember. Genesis helps you interpret itself. So what you've already read, you've, given, you've been given the tools to interpret what you're about to read. You've already got it. We've already been over it. Seven times. That's your clue, okay? All right. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, What's the problem with that? Remember what I said? Genesis 1? When you're walking out of Genesis 1, you should be thinking what? You're going to kill me if you don't get this. That God is really good at determining what is good. We just saw him do it seven times. What are we seeing Eve do right now? She saw... That is what's going on in the text. That's why I wholeheartedly believe, wholeheartedly believe that eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not like some like brain awakening to what's good and what's evil. That's like really hard to, it's a concept that's like weird. What's very clear in the text is that in the process of eating from the tree, Eve determines what is good for herself. That is a direct contradiction of what we saw in Genesis 1-7 through when God is exclusively the one that decides what's good and evil. He said it seven times. You leave Genesis 1 and you know that God knows what's good. So when Eve is eating from the tree, when the fall is taking place, the concept of the fall is man deciding for himself what's right and wrong. That is, that is the essence of the fall. Okay, any, any thoughts, comments, questions on that? This is all connected. They started calling, they call good evil, evil good. That's connected in the prophets. Um, judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight he will direct your paths and it will be healing for your flesh and bones I, that's the that's the deal it this all comes back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil 
that it's a matter of living in the fear of the Lord. I will not decide for myself what's right and wrong. I won't do it. Faisal. Huge, huge. We'll get to that. Yes, you're right on. That is spot on. Okay, before we flip the page on this, anything? All right. It gets tricky here, right? Because Adam know, does Adam know Eve's wrong? He's got a better working brain than we do right now. He's got a perfectly working brain, right? He's, he's perfect. I mean, they say that like we only use 10% of our brain. <laughs> Adam's like fully functioning. He had to know she was wrong. But if he steps in to correct the situation, who also does he now need to correct? His wife, who happens to be his newfound gift. And guys, this goes deep when you get into marriage counseling and stuff. But when you get into marriage counseling, there are guys that won't do what's right because they don't want to lose the affection of their wife. And I, I, this, guys, please hear me. This is all speculation. This is all us just gnawing on the text. But the fact is true. A, Adam would have known she was wrong. And B, she was a newfound gift that would have been hard to lose, right? Or displease. The serpent's response to the woman capitalizes on her lightning of, of judgment and doubles down on God's untrustworthiness. The irony is that man and woman were already like God more than any other creature in existence. This is the first time in the Genesis narrative where someone other than God is calling something good. The serpent's response to the woman, oh yeah, somehow that got in there. I put that, not somehow, I put it in there twice. Um, yeah, okay. Adam abdicates his role as guardian and woman hers as helper. Do you see in Satan's tactic, both of their roles get reversed or unfulfilled I should say maybe Adam doesn't guard and Eve who is Adam's helper helps him right into the pit of hell essentially it, say, that's what Satan he can take our very purpose and turn it in and on itself I mean think of pastors who fall right it actually hurts their life's their whole life's mission and purpose it's wickedly tragic but ironic, you know, in a real twisted sense. In terms of contrast, the Hebrew, the same Hebrew word used to describe Adam's priestly role in the garden is used to describe the cherubim's role stationed at the eastern perimeter, which we've talked about. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, 
and made themselves loincloths. We've already been over this. Retributive irony is present in their newfound nakedness and shame between one another. They expected there to be glory, and instead, remember we've been over, they, they, they saw nakedness. You know, in, I was thinking last night in Revelation, when, when they see Jesus in Revelation, it says that his face shone like the sun. Guys, we can't even look at the sun. I'm just curious, what did Adam and Eve look like in their pre-fall state? You know? Uh, it's just a fun thing to wonder. Like, Incredible. Yeah, just always think. There's a sad saying, I don't know if they have it in Ethiopia. In the States, like if someone messes up or if someone doesn't think they can do something, they say, I'm only human. I'm only human. Well, humanity was like the image of, I mean, we are, but we're fallen. Like, it was the thing. Like, that's such a weird phrase. I'm only human. It's like a total post-fall phrase. C.S. Lewis pictures, um, he has this figurative book called The Great Divorce where he pictures the outskirts of heaven uh, and, and, and hell coming up to the outskirts of heaven and that people from hell can come and view heaven. It's not true, it's just figurative. But um, when they, they pull up in a bus and they get out and they look at heaven and they try to walk on heaven's grass... And it says that the grass was like diamonds, and it hurt their feet. It was like sharp diamonds, so they stepped back. And then they look up, and they're just a common person that looked like an angel, but it was just a normal inhabitant of heaven, walked on the grass, and it crushed beneath their feet, you know? And it's this concept that um, we are, in our, in, in our fallen humanity, we are weak. Weak. Um, and from the way that God intended us to be in his strength. Adam's intended protection of the garden is reversed. This is what Faisal is getting at. Adam was to protect the garden, and now what is he doing? Hiding behind the garden. The garden was to be hiding behind him. He was a sentry. He was the guardian. He was the warden. He was the one, I will not let anything pass. And now he's like, right? It's wickedly tragic. Opened, their eyes are opened, is more akin to blindness. If Adam were seeing properly, he would run to God instead of away from him, in a sense, right? He'd come home like the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son comes to his senses and returns to the father. He's scared of the father. He blames the woman, Adam, blames the woman and God. The woman you gave me is what he has the nerve to say to God, right? God blames him. Man's turned against the two dearest beings in his life, woman and God. 
And then what we talked about earlier today, you see that after the fall, what Satan does is he inverts God's ordained order, where it's God, man, woman, animal, and it's now changed to animal, woman, man, God. And you know, guys, let me just say, sin, I mean, think of, think of the terminology of sin. It's like, it's, it destroys, it, it's destructive, um, dead branches, fruitlessness, you know. Um, Adam turns on Eve, turns on God. What is love? Love is suspicious. Or I'm sorry, unlove is suspicious. Love is, believes all things, hopes all things, trusts all things. You see how sin has an isolating feature to it? Like Adam is completely, he's isolating himself from Eve. They're covering themselves up from each other. There's shame, there's distance. It's, it's, what is it? Diablos. He's separating. He's separating. He's disrupting. Now, redemptive irony, and this is, this is, is this true? Is this not? I think there's something to this. I see redemptive irony instead of retributive irony. In Christ fulfilling each of Adam's fallen actions, okay? So when Adam falls, he has knee-jerk reactions. I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. Three things, what are they? The first one is, what's the first thing he does, him and Eve? Clothes themselves with fig leaves. You know how big fig leaves are? They're like this big. Okay, don't, 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 don't think big. Think what that would look like on your naked body. <laughs> okay, think like going swimming in, a, in like a Speedo bikini, all right? That's, and it's, okay, what you just did, what you just did is exactly what was meant to happen in the text. To read this and go, and the reason why I'm not speculating is because when God clothes them, the Hebrew words used is garments. And guess what? It was a tunic that would go to your wrists and your shins. It's the exact same word that's used when, catch this, the priests are clothed. The text, the narrator wants you to see a vast disparity between your attempt to cover up your sin and God's attempt to cover up your sin. It's laughable if you try to cover it up. It's presentable if God covers it up. Now, it gets more cool because what does the New Testament say that we are to do with Christ? We are to put on Christ. You are to clothe yourself with Christ. This animal sacrificed, I would argue, is the first pointer to blood sacrifice. It's, it's, the, it's this image of, of the coming of the Messiah to clothe you before God. Been over that. This is the passage to quote 
in Galatians 3.27, all of you who are baptized into Christ, this is the New American Standard, it, it will either say put on Christ, which is a, if you look up the Greek, it's a very clothing term, which is why the New American Standard, which tends to be more literal, translates it, you have clothed yourselves with Christ, Galatians 3.27. Redemptive irony is also found in Christ fulfilling, what's the next thing Adam and Eve do when they hear the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden? They hide. What do we see in Christ? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is Paul thinking of that when he writes this? I don't know. But it's pretty fascinating. We're clothed with Christ. Adam was clothed by God. He hides. We're hidden with Christ. Uh, the way I like to think about it is Adam hides behind a tree, and Jesus says, no, 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 this is the tree you need to hide behind. The tree that he was crucified on, right? Another fallen response of Adam, which we've been over, is that he blame shifts, right? He blames God ultimately for receiving Eve. He blames God, though. He's part, Eve's part of it, but God's to blame. And what's fascinating is that in Christ, God accepts our blame. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, or he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So guys, this is totally speculative, but I find it fascinating that Adam's three responses are fulfilled in Christ. His sinful reactions, Jesus says, I'll clothe you, I'll give you a tree to hide behind, and I'll take your blame. It's just incredible. Okay, we're getting into the judgments now of God, the discipline he hands down to Adam and Eve. What's fascinating is that God's first judgment is accompanied by the gospel. Isn't that incredible? The first judgment of the three, God delivers gospel. He starts with the serpent. It's interesting, God's order is that he like accommodates Satan's Right? Because he talks first to the serpent, then he talks to woman, then he talks to man. It's kind of interesting, you know? Just It's things like that when you read the narrative, you should kind of notice stuff like that. And say, and that's what I'm talking about, about reading it about 10 feet away from the Bible. Just say, like, what, what's, what's the big picture going on here? It's just interesting that God accommodates that order. Why he does it, I don't really have a good answer for. But the, maybe the order in which it happened... Possibly. But he says to the serpent, you'll be on your belly, um, which indicates that somehow snakes may have had legs at some point, you know? Because um, I think there is a change that happens. Some people are uncomfortable saying that. I think it's in the text, or at least implied in the text. And then he says, and, and you know, one question is, is why is the animal messed with when it was Satan in it somehow, right? Embodying it. 
And it's interesting that, like, in the law, when animals do something wrong, they are punished for it. Like, if, if a bull, or I forget what animal, ox, gourds somebody, it needs to be put down, you know? So, just interesting that that is carried through in the law. Yeah? Okay. In the prophets? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, the lion and the bear, and huh? Interesting. I love those guys. I love listening to them. Yeah, yeah, interesting. The Lord, the Lord, and, and, and so the reason I'm sharing this from Exodus 34 is it's very fascinating. God's first judgment, He delivers gospel. I'm going to make this all right. And this is the character of God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So it's just fascinating. It's not that God doesn't deliver judgment on Adam and Eve. He does. But that he rushes in, and the first things that come out of his mouth are gospel. It's just incredible. It's his nature. It's his nature. So he goes to Eve, and we talked about this. She's disciplined in the area of her sphere. And, and this, is, this is fascinating, guys. Check this out. She's disciplined in the area that she left. For instance, would it seem weird... If some guy, you guys tell me, if some guy came to the house that Becky and I didn't know, and he was kind of like an intimidating guy, and I went to the door to talk to him, and Becky came up to me and says, Ben, 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 I'll, I'll handle this. Would that make you feel weird? <laughs> it, would, it would make me feel weird. Like, it's kind of like, Becky, that's my job. Like, I should be the one handling this, right? That would be odd. Well, that's essentially the role Eve accepted in the garden. And now God's saying, in the role that you were meant for, there's going to be pain. So this isn't getting into that retributive irony. Man, I really wish it. Let me throw this. This is a good quote to take with you. Never make fun of somebody for mispronouncing a term because they likely learned it when they were reading. Right? And I don't know if I'm saying retributive or retributive. I say it different almost every time. So um, anyway, but it's this retributive irony that she's disciplined in the realm that she forsook. And that's what I got to in there. And this is, these are tough, tough passages that you have to deal with. In um, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, a woman shall be saved through childbearing. What in the world is he talking about? Is an infertile woman, is a barren woman going to hell? Of course not, right? What's he getting at? Well, the word that's used there, shall be saved, has the semantic range 
to also mean kept safe. Kept safe. So it's not speaking in a salvific sense as far as salvation, but kept safe through childbearing. What I think Paul is saying there is that to the degree that a woman will accept her God-given sphere, which is for the good of humanity, man, if moms don't do their job, what hope do we have? Right? Praise God for mothers. I mean, I look at Becky and I'm like, I couldn't do any of the stuff she does in the capacity she does it. So I think what Paul is saying is, to the degree that a woman accepts her God-given role, she will be kept safe. That's, that's the concept. The, the more she wants to, to, to take the man's role, she's getting into dangerous territory. I think that's the extent of what Paul's saying. She's, she's getting in trouble. She's in, she's in a place she shouldn't be in. Bad things are going to happen. That's what I think he's getting at. Redemptive, redemptive irony um, redemptive irony is present in that the realm under discipline will be the means through which the curse fall will be reversed. The realm under discipline will be the means through which the curse fall will be reversed. Here's Here's the redemptive irony in this. Man, man says, God, the reason this all happened is because you gave me a woman. Okay? What part does man have in the conception of Christ? <laughs> a big fat zero, right? It's Mary and the Holy Spirit. It's Mary and it's God. So the two, the two entities that Adam credited with being the reason will be the means through which the fall is reversed. It's redemptive irony. Redemptive. It's good. It's good. Adam is disciplined in the realm that he forsook. He forsook caring for the garden, guarding it, and now the ground is going to be cursed. It's not going to work with him. Okay? So that's retributive irony. And it's also the realm that he was taken from. And that sense of irony there. And I want you to remember, I want you to remember, because you remember with Judah? Remember Judah in Genesis 38 with Tamar, right? And he keeps thinking that his sons are dying because Tamar is evil. And who's the most wicked person in that whole text? Judah. <laughs> And that is very much what's happening in the garden. Adam is most culpable. Why? He had the knowledge. He had the experience with God. He knew it. And he blew it. He's most culpable. 
Oh, okay. Before we get into that, um, a question came up I didn't have in here, but this is, this is really important. So uh, there's two terms. I'd be interested to hear what Josh says about this. I don't want to contradict anything he's saying, but, you know, there are two concepts of how um, sin gets attached to us, you know, um, and there's two concepts out there, seminal headship, which means it gets passed through essentially like reproduction, and then there's federal headship, that the moment Adam sinned, we were all determined to be guilty because he is our head, he is our origin, you know, and I think, I think both are in the text, personally. Um, we are all, we are all called sinners because our representative sinned. And I think you need to maintain that because when you get to Jesus, we are all called righteous because our representative was righteous. See? So it works both ways with Christ. So, you know, and if people ever get offended as to, if Adam sinned, why am I held guilty? The concept is still fresh in our culture. And I was just telling the guys at lunch, what just happened this summer for the entire world? Not COVID. The summer Olympics. And I was telling the guys, when an Ethiopian wins, you guys say what? We won! We won! You had nothing to do with it. Right? But you accept the win. Now, very funnily, when people lose, what do you say? We lost. <laughs> That's very funny. Very funny. So it tells us something very deep about our nature and how we view ourselves, right? They lost, yeah, yeah, they lost. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, you know, and if U.S. wins, I say, we win! I had nothing to do with it, but I accept it because they're my representative, right? It's very what, much what federal headship is. And then you see seminal headship where it's passed on through reproduction in Genesis 5 where Adam had a son who was born in his likeness in, in his image, according to his likeness. Same words used for Adam and God, right? As his image. So I see, I see a both and there. Brian. What's that? Oh, well, okay. So us being held guilty because Adam sinned is federal. Seminal is re the reproduction. Yes. Right. And you're saying so that so that Mary giving birth to Jesus, is that what you're getting at? Okay. Yes, and I think I think Sin has to do with man primarily because he's, he's our representative responsible. He is our leader because it all has to get transferred to Christ somehow. And so, yeah, I, I, see, I see Seminole coming through the man in that it was born after his likeness in his image in Gen 5, Genesis 5. Yeah. Free will. 
Yeah, so free will, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, sovereignty of God, huge discussion. And here, here's what I would say. The Bible spends the majority of the time talking about the responsibility of man. However, it does not flinch an inch in saying that all things are from him, through him, and to him. Okay? So this is where, I don't remember who said it, one of you guys said that Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph looks at his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, is kind of a summary of not just that moment, but the whole of Genesis. The Bible Project makes that point very strongly. I think it's really valid. I think it's a good summary of what's come before. And that really says it well. Joseph looks at his brothers, and he said, and when we get to the Joseph scenario, this will become a lot stronger. But he says to them, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Somehow God ordained the whole thing because he gave those dreams to Joseph, which got the whole thing set off. He comes out and he says, hey, everybody gather around. I got something really cool to tell you. You all basically worship me. They're like, I'm going to kill you. Right? <laughs> so, so God's sovereign over the whole event. You can't escape that. And yet the brothers are still held guilty for evil. So that's where the sovereignty of God gets behind the clouds, and we have to say, you're God, I'm man. So, yes, there is this sense in which there is, I am doing something of my own initiative, and there's also something going on at the same time that God has ordained all things are from, through, and to, Romans 11, 33 to 36. It's tricky, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, oh, A.B., sorry. Yeah, federal. So wouldn't that mean that Christ was also sinner? Had it not been Samuel, Right. And that's where, I'm going to be honest, I haven't studied this in a long time. So Josh, I think, would be way better at this. But I think there is something to the significance that Joseph wasn't obviously involved in the impregnation of Mary. It was from God himself, from the Holy Spirit. So that is the essence, I think, of the sinlessness, the, the, how Jesus could be born and not be a sinner, that God was the one to impregnate Mary. So seminal sins have been more appealing to you? Appealing? Appealing to, like, followers of rather than federal Oh, I, love, I think they're both there. I think they're both there, and federal has to be there, in that Romans 5 says, we were all counted sinners in Adam. That's federal. Federal headship. And we were all called righteous in Christ. So Christ's redeeming work gets applied to us through federal headship, not seminal. Yeah, so obviously Christ's redemption does not come through a seminal way. It comes through a federal way. So, I mean, of the two that you cannot miss, it's federal. But I just see in Genesis 5 when it says, and Adam had another son in his image and in his likeness, it's really hard to not see that there's something with seminal there. Okay. Oh, this is, this is gorgeous, guys. All right. 
the gavel gets dropped, judgment has fallen, right? There's, there's a likely opportunity that we see in Adam's response a repentance and a faith. The question is, is Adam in hell? Is Eve in hell? I don't think so. I think Adam received God's judgment. Because this is the question, guys. We just talked about this morning. When Israel gets the gavel dropped on them in the wilderness, do they respond with repentance? Or do they respond with another version of unbelief? Unbelief. They try to break into the land, right? When God's not with them. Adam's response seems to be a genuine repentance. And here's how I would navigate you through that, okay? Adam responds in faith. I'm arguing. Of course, it's negotiable. But he chooses to focus on the promise in the discipline of God. The promise. That he, so first of all, did Adam know that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die? Did he know if it was that moment or that season? I don't know. I don't know if he knew that. Maybe he thought it was right away that God was going to now kill them. I don't know. But what he does know is that God told Eve, woman, that she was going to have pains in childbearing. So Adam seems to latch onto the good thing. She's going to have children. And beyond that, she's going to have a descendant that is going to what? Crush the serpent's head. So it seems like Adam is responding to that in his name for Eve, because what Eve is a playoff of is life. It would be like, you know, in the English language, naming your daughter Olivia, right? What does that have in it? The word in the middle, live. It, it's reminiscent of life. You, you, you'd be nervous to meet a, a girl called Odethia, right? <laughs> you'd be like, Ooh. So he's, he's, He's capitalizing on the life that God promised, all right? Here's another thing Adam's doing. What is he doing now that he wasn't just doing a few moments earlier? He's naming Eve. Guys, do you remember? Adam was with Eve in the garden. I mean, it says that. He was with her. So he stood by and watched this whole thing happen as he didn't do his role. And now, what is he doing? He's taking headship again. Isn't it gorgeous? He's saying, I will step back into the role that I abdicated. And I will take authority back that I should have had to begin with. And I'll do what God's called me to do. And I will name her. Right? So what is repentance? All repentance, repentance is not a Christian word. Technically. It's just taken from the Greek language. It's just a word that means to turn. To turn. You'd hear it in the marketplaces. To turn. I, I was going here and then I turned. That's repentance. It's been Christianized, of course, because we use it so much. But repentance means essentially this. That's what repentance means. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry or confessing your sin. Repentance is a changed behavior. It's a difference. This, you know, John the Baptist, the people say, hey, what should we do? He goes, those of you who are stealing, you soldiers out there, taking, 
Stop stealing. That's repentance. Uh, Zacchaeus, Jesus comes to his house. He's a tax collector. Everybody hates him. He adds on to what Rome wants, so he gets money and he's rich. Everybody hates him. He's stealing from his own people, right? Jesus comes to his house, and he says, I got an announcement to make. Anything I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to pay back four times, which is played off of the law, actually. And you know what Jesus says? Salvation has entered this house. Why? Changed behavior. I'm different. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm going to do things differently. That's repentance. And this is what we see Adam do. So you got to make a conclusion. Is Adam responding in faith? I hope, right? I mean, these are two indications that he may be responding in faith. I will say this. If you're, if you're kind of on the fence whether Adam's responding in faith or just calling a fact, okay, she's going to have kids. She's the mother of all living. Let's just go die together. <laughs> right? That's, that's unbelief, right? Or it could be faith. Here's another argument that I think it's belief. I think it's faith. Is when you see how Cain responds to his sin, which we'll get to. Okay, so keep that, just keep that in mind if you're on the fence, which is fine. You don't have to agree with me on all this stuff. Uh, we're just doing the best job we can, okay? All right, in naming woman Eve, he steps back into the role he'd abdicated moments earlier, repentance. Okay, this is from Henry Blocker. This is the guy I quote, I've quoted quite a bit here. This is this book, really old book, but interesting. I don't, I don't like everything he says in this book. He's, a, he's an old earth creationist, you know? I'm not crazy about that, but um, really good book. And a, a thing for old earth, a thing for old earth that I'm not crazy about and I shared with the guys at lunch is old earthers want, need death before the fall of the animal kingdom. Very uncomfortable with that. I don't want fossils before there was sin. That, to me, is a problem. That they say, well, leaves died, flowers died, so animals could have died. And I'm like, eh, I don't like it. So that's, that's a big thing for me. But Blocker says this, so Adam called his wife life, whereas, in fact, death has just entered the world. Where did he get such a bold idea, which almost seems blind to reality? Not from unawareness but from a very precise awareness of the full significance of the words God had spoken. Isn't that beautiful? Despite death and despite the suffering that will afflict the woman, God has maintained the blessing of children. He has thus promised a stubborn perseverance of life, come what may. He has promised a future. Melanchthon was not wrong to call Eve the seal of grace. Beautiful. Okay, God instantly responds after the judgment in grace, clothing them, laying the groundwork for blood sacrifice, which will play a prominent role throughout the rest of the Bible. Definitely, guys, I think you need to strongly consider the death of this animal or animals as, as a precursor of what's to come. Very, very important, I think. And I hope, I hope in all this, you're really seeing the unity of the Bible. That there's nothing new. It's all telling, it's all got the same message going on. Pointing to the same Savior. Okay, the Lord God said, behold, 
Man has come like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Very interesting what happens here. God doesn't finish his sentence. That's how I try to read it, because it's in the text. He doesn't finish it. He stops mid-sentence and banishes him from the garden. Right? Now, how should we think of this? Do any of you guys remember, I don't know if it would, play, would have been played on the news here or not, do you remember when Saddam Hussein was taken down? Was that a big deal here or no? It was? Do you remember a picture of what they did to one of his huge statues? They, they tied ropes to it, and I think it was maybe attached to a tank, and they backed up, and this, like, you know, thing came down. Okay. That is the image that I want you to have in what God just did to Adam and Eve. They are now, though I would believe responding well to his grace, they are not fully in his image, which, which the Spirit of God is moving us from degree to the next, right? And so God now has an, a corrupted image of himself and must banish it from his presence into the realm of death. That's what I think is taking place here. The image needs to come down and be remade, which is why he's going to send his son ultimately, to do that with the Holy Spirit within us. But I think that's the image, that's an image that needs to come in mind in what God, what, what his uh, heart is doing. Um, there's also, I would say, a grace, a grace in it, right? Imagine that there's a gas chamber, okay? A gas chamber. And God said, hey, 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 do not go in that gas chamber, it will distort your body. It, it will be a mess. You'll, be just a, you'll just be a horrific, graphic thing to look at. Don't go in that gas chamber. And then you go out of that gas chamber. You go into that gas chamber. And God walks in the room. And he sees you in that gas chamber just kind of checking things out. But the gas, you can't smell it. It's already, it's already happening. It's going to have its effect on you at this point. Okay? If God lets you out of that gas chamber, you will be grotesque for perpetuity for eternity, right? God comes up to that gas chamber, and before you know it, the door is shut. He spins the wheel. You're locked. And you look at the window. I would argue that this is both justice of God in tearing down a false image and the mercy of God because he will not let Adam and Eve live forever in their corrupted state. So I see a blend of justice and mercy here in him bringing them out. So now they don't have access to the tree of life, right? Which means they're going to die. And so I, I think that there's justice and grace at play in this text. Humanity is now experiencing a purgatory of sorts 
facing, tasting the sorrow which sin let in in order that we might turn to, to God in faith according to the provision he's provided in Christ. Guys, so I, honestly, I, I haven't studied a lot of Roman Catholic theology of purgatory, but as much as I understand, it tends to be in the realm of, maybe some of you guys have Catholic backgrounds or are more familiar with it than I, but it, I think it tends to be in a sense, people die, they go into this you know, intermediate state of purgatory, and in that state they suffer, and in that suffering they are purified so that they can enter heaven. That's kind of my concept of purgatory. Inferno, yeah, that sort of thing, okay? Guys, here's kind of what I look at it, and I, and I assess it. I'm kind of like, that's what God already did in this earth. He has put this earth in such an uncomfortable way that we should long and yearn for redemption. So in a sense, God has done, per, like in some sense, I'm like, to the Roman Catholics, I'm like, yeah, you know, I think that's kind of the case. I just think it's going on right now. <laughs> Not after death. There's, you know, there's, God will refer to himself as an eagle hovering over the nest, you know. And if you take that analogy, when eagles make their nest, I mean, first of all, eagles' nests are like massive. They're really large. And one of the things that eagle, eagles will do is they will pick up bones, sharp bones, shards of stone, sharp stones, uncomfortable object, branches, things that are very uncomfortable, and they will line the bottom of their nest with that. And then they go out and they get grass or feathers or, you know, yeah, straw, what, what, other items that will line it in a very comfortable way. Now, as I read, what e eagles' mothers do when they're eaglets, it's time for them to get out of the nest. They will stir it up, Right? So when that little baby that's like not cutting the ap apron strings like he should and getting away from mom, when he tries to sleep there and be a lazy bum, he's going to be like, ow, ah, I don't like, this is not comfortable anymore. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to make my own. The mom's like, good idea, right? <laughs> that's in a sense what God has done with the fall. This is another mercy, or not the fall, the, the, the disciplines. It's another mercy. God, what God did with the ground not working with us. What God did with death. Guys, listen, I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know who you've lost. But there are tragic deaths that take place. Stillborn children. I mean, the, the greatest pain imaginable. People losing their children like that. I've got a friend that his little two-year-old, or not even two, just huge tumor in his hip. And they found out that it's in his lungs. His name's Wilson. You can pray for him. But uh, this is tragedy, right? This is tragedy. But the reason Wilson's strongest message in his cancer is don't put your hope here. Don't build your house here. Don't remain here. This is not your home. This is not your nest. It is in its current condition giving you a message. And that message is, long for a city 
whose architect and builder is God. So C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our joys, and he shouts as through a megaphone in our pain. His pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world, is what C.S. Lewis says. That pain wakes us up to the fact that this is not where we should pitch our tent. And people will forget that, as we'll see. Okay? So remember that about the fall. Yeah, you have Sega. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So here's. So would you say that's a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, so I think what God is saying is he knows good and evil in the sense that he's, he's, he's now a competitor to me in defining good and evil. He's a competitor. Do you guys have Pepsi here? A little bit? Well, Pepsi and Coke are competitors, right? They both kind of taste similar, right? They're competitors, that's kind of like with God and man now. Man has assumed the role. Like, let's say God stands on this table. Man has now stepped on this table, and, and God's saying, this is my definition of good and evil, and now man's standing next to him saying, yeah, but this is my definition of good and evil. And that is what God says no can do. That can't happen. It's a mercy for those. So it's a judgment on those who want to keep defining good and evil for themselves. It's a mercy for those that are glad to not define it for themselves anymore, to die. It's a judgment on those that will die to their dying day trying to define good and evil for themselves. It's a judgment on them. It, God's word is an aroma of death to them. But to those that are like, oh man, if I die, like Paul, it would be better for me, honestly. But it's better for me that I stay. Better for you that I stay. So I think God's going to have me live. And that's okay too. Right? But I'd really like to die if God has, has it. I'm excited. 
I'm ready. That's a mercy that he's going to die. Paul sees death as a mercy. Sinful world sees death as a judgment. I'm going to take anything I can to live as long as I can. I'm going to fight. Live as long as I possibly can. Whereas Christians, yeah, you should treat your body well. You shouldn't like be like a masochist and like put yourself in unsafe circumstances. But like when death comes, hey man. Jonathan Edwards says, why do we why do we mourn? Why would you mourn? Like, think about it. If when I called Becky at the airport to tell her that I arrived safely, she started crying. That would bespeak a problem, right? But if I arrive safely and she's like, oh, I'm so happy. That's just like, I'm happy you got where you wanted to go safely, right? We should rejoice when our pilgrims get home, not, not mourn it. So I would say God's judgment of death is a judgment on those that want life to be on this earth and a mercy for those that are very happy to exit this life and be in the presence of God in a new state. That, that's the best way I could get to it. So, um, okay. Let's see. Adam, this is very important, guys. Check this out. Adam is now, ex, uh, now in exile. Okay? He is in exile, which offers the lens through which to assess Every subsequent character. All right. Man's primary role. Guys, you've got to catch this. It will explain so much in the rest of the Bible. Is man's primary role on an identity on earth dweller or alien? All right. Right now. Are we inhabitants or strangers? Are we at home or are we in exile? That's your identity right now. That's the church's identity. The, the church is an embassy of the kingdom. It's an embassy. It's the presence of a kingdom in a foreign land. It's the presence of a nation of God in a foreign land. That's what we are. So we do not plant our stakes deep here. This, this is not our home. We are away from the immediate presence of God that we were intended to live in and dwell and abide and enjoy. So what this place is for us now is just a temporary thing. Okay? If, if when we get to the Exodus, who, who, who do we relate more with? with Israel, when they are in their wilderness state or when they are in the promised land? Wilderness. This lifespan is not promised land. This lifespan is wilderness. Now, there are degrees of promised land here, and Hebrews 12 gets to it because it says when we worship, we come to Mount Zion, and we're in the presence of heavenly angels. So there is a sense in which we taste it here, but this isn't it. This is temporary. Okay? But what we're going to find as we go through Genesis and beyond is we're going to ask this question of many of the characters. Are they at home or in there? Are, the, are they in exile? Which ones? Which ones? 
And the reason we make a big deal about it is because the Bible makes a big deal about it. Hebrews 11, case in point. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived in tents. He makes a big deal about that. Do we know, you could look at the biblical landscape and say, oh, well, they just weren't houses back then. Well, then why does Lot shut his door? Right? And bolt it. <laughs> you get the idea. And we'll talk about Lot, and, and, and we'll assess him which one he was, okay? Significant discussion. All right. Um, how are you guys doing? Do you need to take a quick break? You all right? All right. We'll take a break in a little bit. Let's keep going. And he drove out. This is a forceful word. He drove out. You kind of get the idea that Adam and Eve's feet were like digging in their heels. Like, hey, hey, you got to go. You got to go. Painful moment. Painful moment. Okay. Um, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We've talked about that. Some people conjecture that that was lightning that he had. Um, very interesting. No realm is left untouched by the fall. Earth is touched. The animal kingdom is touched. The, you know, the serpent is changed. Animals die because of Adam and Eve's sin. And you kind of get the moment that once this sin happened, and, and like all the animals like kind of see those two animals get slaughtered by God, they're kind of like, okay, we don't really want to hang out with you anymore. Like, we're gone. So the whole world's turned upside down. Humanity is turned in on itself. There's the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman that are in, in, in conflict. Marriage is in conflict. Childbearing is affected. Work is affected in Adam's discipline. Uh, relationships as a whole, I, that was where I was going to talk about seed of the serpent. Health, people are now going to die. Relationship with God. And it's all with a purpose. And that purpose is to not make our home here. That's the purpose. Okay? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, I didn't really get into that. So, the way I look at it is, okay, he says to Adam, because you listen to your wife, very significant that we get this wrong for your future marriages, okay? Is God saying you should never listen to your wife? <laughs> listen, if that were true in my marriage, a lot of bad decisions would have been made. All right? Becky is in a million ways brighter than I am, academically and all kinds of things, right? So I consult Becky with nearly everything I do. I value her opinion, right? But what he's talking about is you listen to your wife in what was wrong, right? So it's not never listen to your wife. It's don't listen to your wife when she is wanting you to go worship idols. It'll talk about in the law, okay? So that's one thing to clarify. Another thing is, so she says, you know, you will desire your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, what I see that as is that Eve um, is sort of cemented in her disposition to take control. Like, that will now always be a struggle for you, Eve. Like, you won't ever get out of that. It'll always be a temptation. Now, that temptation, by the grace of God, could get so, like, 
gone that you'd have to work to even pull it back up, which is what a lot of healthy marriages are like. But it will always be reachable. Like, you will always have that option and tendency to say, I mean, think about it, guys. I mean, what am I? I'm a fallen fool, right? And Becky is called to follow me. That's kind of scary, right? In some, like, huge financial decisions that I have to make the call, you know? Now, of course I get her input, but ultimately it falls on me if I'm going to do something or not for our family. And so that's a scary thing, to follow a person that's not God, in a sense. And so that's why uh, Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, like, Sarah did not give in to fear in following Abraham. I mean, think of what Abraham did. Hey, it's time to go, you know. We're 75 years old. We've lived in one place our whole lives, basically, you know. We, when, whenever we travel, we travel with our family. We're with our family. Let's just go to some place, you know. No idea. Let's just go. He told me. Who told you? Oh, you know. Heard this voice. And she goes. And so, and Peter says, she called her husband Lord. You know, she submitted to him in this, even though it was fearful. And he says, so women, if you don't give in to fear either, you will be blessed. So that's where I think he's coming at it. Like, there's always going to be this tendency to be like, yeah, I want to take control. I think that's what he's getting at. So all of the curse happens for this reason, I think it's played out. Ecclesiastes, one, another one of my favorite books, is very intimately tied to Genesis. Okay, And here's, here's what Ecclesiastes essentially does. God says, okay, all right, all right, all right. I know that all of you people out there are wondering if, yeah, 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 I know the earth has fallen. I know, that, I know all that. I know that that happened. I know you did that, God. But, what if I had all the money in the world? What if I had all the women in the world? What if I had all the comedians in the world? And anytime I was down, I could just call one of the comedians into my house and they'd make me laugh and cheer me up. They were my buddies. They ate at my table. What if I could build a building that took 13 years to build? You know, with, 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 with a workforce like the size of a nation. What would that building look like, you know? What if I had gardens that looked like the Garden of Eden? What if I had it all on the fallen earth? Would I be happy then? That's essentially the book of Ecclesiastes. God gives, that, God gives you that answer. And that's through Solomon. In Solomon's day, gold and silver were like pebbles on the street. He takes forever to build his house. He's got how many wives, how many women he can sleep with at any time of any day? Like tons, right? Yeah, just, he's got everything. People are bringing him lumber from everywhere and gold. He's just doing all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, what if I was like the smartest guy in the whole world too? Because Solomon was the smartest guy, most gifted guy, discerning guy in the whole world next to Jesus. I mean, he had everything. Everything imaginable in his day. And what is his conclusion? He tells you right at the very beginning. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. 
and behold. It's all Havel. It's a playoff of Abel. A striving after the wind. It's just, it's like a mist that's here and gone tomorrow. That's what it's like. So any of you guys out there that are kind of thinking, yeah, I know, life isn't supposed to be totally comfortable here, but what if I made it really comfortable? He's saying, you still won't be happy. And guys, you live in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. has unlimited wealth for a lot of people. And of those people, the people that have the most wealth are the movie stars. They're the most unhappy people in the whole world. They're dying from overdosing. Suicide. It's happening all the time. Tom Brady, do you guys know Tom Brady? Football player for the Patriots, New England Patriots. He's won like six Super Bowls in, in football. He was interviewed, and after he won a Super Bowl, which is really big in the U.S., you know, I know soccer, it's like it's football there is like the thing. He's doing an interview after he won the Super Bowl, gets his next ring. I can't remember what Super Bowl. The interviewer says, so what do you think now that you got the next ring? He's married to like a supermodel, you know, everything you can imagine. And you know what Tom Brady's response was? I think, is this it? Is this all there is? There's got to be something more. Guys, I'm quoting him. It's what he says in the interview. Is that it? Is that all there is? There's got to be something more. He said, what's your favorite Super Bowl ring? He goes, you know what his answer was? The next one. I mean, it's like from a guy that doesn't know Jesus, and he's speaking Solomonic truth. So this is, God's given us the answer. The answer is don't build your house here. Build it on the rock. So when the rain comes, it doesn't wash away. Yeah. Abel's blood is still doing what? Speaking. Abel's still here. Cain's long gone. Abel's still talking. Amazingly. Yeah, Brian. Romans 2, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good, very good question. Yeah. So, you know, do you have kids? Yeah. So you, you've seen it then. You know, you don't have to teach the kid that someone taking his toy is wrong. <laughs> right? He's pretty well aware. So the, our con here's, here's the thing about conscience. The law is written on our hearts, and our conscience attests to it, bear witness, they affirm or condemn that doesn't mean, however, that consciences can't be informed or influenced by sin. So there is a sense in which man knows he's wrong when he's doing what's wrong. 
there's also a sense in which if he does what's wrong long enough, he might actually get to the point where he convinces himself it's not wrong. It's still wrong. He's going to be condemned. But he did that manipulative work in his brain over time that he actually feels okay doing it. Whereas the first time he did it, he, it pricked his conscience. So conscience is another grace of God, but it's not infallible. Conscience, that's why you see the Holocaust and what those people did there, and you're like, unfathomable. But they, warped, they, they informed and worked and manipulated and massaged their conscience to the point where they kind of accepted it, you know? Um, so I think the law of God is written in humanity, in all humanity, from all time. Um, but the conscience is malleable. It's, it's shaped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Adam's conscience was flawless, and it was informed by the Word of God. So it was as brilliant as it could ever be next to Christ, you know, him and Eve. So, yeah, I would say that that's always, that's always there. Yeah. Um, yeah, good question. Okay, guys, man, we are finally in Genesis 4, okay? Um, let's take, let's take a 10 minute break.